How Your World Works is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk-free trial and a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code WORLD. That's Stamps.com, promo code WORLD. So I really like photography, and having grown up out west, I particularly like photographs of the mountains. I'm not a good photographer myself, but landscapes always seemed accessible to me because you get a tripod and a big lens, and you drive up to the foothills, and you're all set. Well, on today's show, Popular Mechanics Editor-in-Chief Ryan D'Agostino interviews somebody whose approach is a little bit different. His name is Jimmy Chin, and he's the co-director of a new documentary called Meru about an attempt to climb one of the most elusive mountain peaks in the world. I'm not giving anything away, but let's just say that he doesn't exactly set up shop at sunset in an alpine meadow. And of course, the movie's more than just a pretty face, get it, like a rock face. It's actually the story about three guys who are trying to accomplish a truly astounding feat physically and psychologically. After that interview, we'll play another round of Stupid or Amazing with a product designed to make soda a little easier to get your hands on for a price. And I don't just mean tooth decay, diabetes, or obesity. I'm Kevin Dupsick, and this is How Your World Works. So there's a great movie out right now about a high-stakes climb on a mountain in the Himalayas. And it's not Everest with Josh Brolin and Jake Gyllenhaal. It's a movie about a mountain called Meru, which is another peak in the Himalayas that's climbed by three guys who are, who are truly stars of the climbing world. It's a documentary and Popular Mechanics editor-in-chief, Ryan D'Agostino. You recently got to see it. How was it? Fantastic. It blew me away. I, I went into it knowing nothing about it. I had, I, I just, it was a word, Meru. It was like a nonsense word. I didn't know it was about climbing or anything. And... You go in and you see these these three men climbing, trying to climb this mountain mm-hmm. uh, with everything they've got, and uh, it's it's a it's a it's a climbing movie, but it's it's a it's a movie about sort of persistence and friendship and uh, determination and love and craziness and all these things happening at you know eighteen thousand feet is phenomenal. Yeah. So Everest is obviously the the Himalayan mountain that everybody's heard of. Why did these guys want to climb Meru? Well, no one, no one had ever done it. So when they set out to do it in, in 2008, uh, it was unclimbed. You know, it was like this thing out there that many people had attempted, and they wanted to attempt it uh, again. So they did, and it was a it was a three man climbing crew, and it was, mm-hmm. it was a three man film crew. I guess two of them were really the the cinematographers. So you see this movie; it's stunning cinematography, taken. By shot by these men who are also attempting this impossible <laughs> climb, so it's it's really two feats in one, and and you you just can't believe as you're watching it that what they're going through physically, that they're simultaneously managing to film this beautiful movie, and it's not just you know oh, another lovely panorama. It's a it's a real story. It's a beautiful story that they tell uh, exquisitely through their through their camera work and through their interviews. So. To me, it was, a, it was a huge sort of accomplishment in documentary filmmaking. When I spoke with Jimmy Chin, the director, uh, which you're about to hear, we focus on, on the how. How do you do that technically mm-hmm. and technologically? Because you don't see the cameras. He ma- you just see the guys climbing. It's like, where, where's all your amazing equipment? And he's, he's very skilled. He's been doing this, this kind of filming for many years. But this, this is a small miracle, this film. Yeah, so just to be clear... They had to bring all the gear it takes to climb this mountain, which also includes even just things like food, because you don't do it in one. It's not a day hike. But then they also brought all their filmmaking equipment. Right, right. It's it's again. It's just a, it was a remarkable 
task to to put on themselves you know they because uh, of course they no one was you know asking them to do this and uh <laughs> it was just sort of a human challenge that they couldn't help but to attempt to achieve all right we're going to go now to ryan's interview with director jimmy chin but first let's take a quick listen to the film's trailer the rewards of climbing are huge the problem is you don't always come out of okay people die and then you can't justify it that is the great dilemma the idea of not climbing was too much to imagine. I've got two kids, my wife's there, and I'm responsible for them. I had this premonition. I didn't want him to go. If we go for it, there's a probability that we aren't gonna come back. Am I taking too many chances? Can I control the risk? Of course you can't control the risk. Thank you so much for, for joining us here on the on the podcast. Uh, Meru is, you know, I've become obsessed with it since I saw it. It's it's I didn't know much about it going in, which I think is the best way to see it. Uh, it's a, it's I agree. a, you know, uh, it 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 blew me away, and I think it's blowing a lot of people away. So, my first question is, you know, you watch this movie and you're thinking, these guys, I mean, they're these guys are crazy, you know, when when the obstacles start to pile up and and the your efforts become harder and harder and, and the the goal is more and more daunting and dangerous and you think and and yet you keep at it and you think these are these guys are crazy so the question is are you crazy is there something that's that's fundamentally different about the kind of person who can try to climb mountains and the types of mountains that you try to climb in Meru in particular <laughs> I don't know if you can ever ask a crazy person whether or not they're crazy <laughs> <laughs> They're probably going to deny it, but I'm going to have to. Um, I, I don't think I'm crazy. Um, I think that, you know, I look at people doing certain things and I think they're crazy uh, when, you know, completely uncalculated, uh, see the pants, poor decision making type of people. And, you know, I think climbers and, and the most successful climbers that I know are actually the most calculated people that I know. Mm -hmm. And they have a very deep sense of risk and how to manage it. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm only, I'm joking a little bit, but not completely, yeah. you know, and be, because of course you are, you and Conrad and Renan, I mean, you guys are, are masters, technical masters at what you do. And you are at the height of your uh, you know, profession, for lack of a better word, you know what you're doing, and I, and I, you know, I don't mean to suggest that you were, you know, you're going up there half cocked, and you know, let's see if we can do this. I mean, <laughs> you know, if anyone, you know, should be trying this, it's it's you guys, and yet still, because of the, just the difficulty of the task um, at hand, and 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 the and the goal, and the unforeseen things, let's just say that that uh, that threatened to get in your way. You know, you don't. There was. It's almost like there was nothing that that was going to make you back down, and 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 it's uh, it's admirable. I mean, you th you know, everyone wants to think that they could be capable of such passion and, and dedication. You must have fear. You must have had doubts. It's not. I mean, even with all the calculation and planning in the world, which you guys did and did well. How do, how do how do doubt and fear play into it? And and are they can they be useful? Can those be useful things? That's a great question. I mean, I've either seen the film or followed some of the other projects I've worked on, 
um, they they ask, "Are you scared of anything?" And I tell them that I'm, you know, I'm scared all the time, and huh. there's there's doubt and fear, whether that's in climbing a mountain or trying to make a film or trying to convince people to help finance a film that you're working on, um, to commit to a project. I mean, I feel like my day is, like, riddled with doubt and fear. (laughs) (laughs) But it's how you manage it. And, you know, a big part of the climbing aspect is is managing fear and, uh, and kind of separating perceived risk versus real risk and you know, making good decisions up there, um, those are all part of it. But, you know, doubt and, you know, whether or not you want to go on a trip like this, I mean, I, you know, keeps me up at night all the time. Yeah. Um, it kept me up, up at night before I left for Meru. I mean, I was questioning every day and, um, but I think that's a lot about what life is about, you know, and it's trying to step up and, and face your fears and face your doubts and commit to an idea or commit to a project or commit to a person, you know, it's yeah. always going to be filled with doubt. And fear, you know, fear can be the greatest motivator, you know. Um, you mentioned, yeah. you know, the difficulties of climbing a mountain or, making a film well you were doing both at once here and what struck me and it it didn't hit me until I think afterwards you don't see really any cameras in the film you don't you're not aware of any difficulties you may have faced in trying to make a film and by the way the cinematography is astonishing I mean this is not this is not like some guys who are climbers first who kind of grabbed a video camera at the last second and and decided to make a documentary it it has a it, it is a polished and beautiful and well-told uh, cinematic story. Well, this, you know, I've been filming and shooting uh, expeditions for almost 20 years, but I would say that, you know, Meru was, you know, required kind of every, everything I'd ever learned about shooting in the big mountains and on really difficult expeditions. And, uh, you know, I mean, we weren't able to, recharge batteries or look at our dailies or you know, really focus on a shot list. I mean, it was really shooting on the fly, but we had to shoot very carefully, thoughtfully, because we had limited power um, and we just had limited bandwidth. You know, we were, mm-hmm. trying, to, we were trying to find this thing that was had really kind of defeated so many teams in the past. And then um, it was about just getting the camera out when we could. And, and filming, but it adds quite a bit of complexity to an already complex situation because when you're climbing uh, in, on something like Meru, you can't make any mistakes. Um, like an oversight of one small thing could be catastrophic. So <laughs> then you add on top of that, like, oh, we got I got to keep these batteries warm tonight. Where am I going to put them? Um, you know, changing out a card in negative 20 degrees with gloves on, <laughs> not dropping the card. Uh, you know, there's, it, it definitely added some um, anxiety, additional anxiety onto the plan. I would think. 
What uh, what yeah. kind of uh, equipment were you using? What, did you have a main camera, and and what did you bring up there with you? Do you have to use? Is it special equipment that can withstand uh, temperatures and altitude? Well, I was on in 2008 when we went there. We shot just with like a Sony Handycam, um, hmm. but you know we shot it, uh, you know, carefully. Um, you know, I I can't help but think about composition and sequences and that, that kind of thing. Um, so that that comes pretty naturally. But in between 2008 and 2011, the, the DSLR video revolution happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so I brought the Canon 5D Mark II and shot uh, I two lenses. Um, we had the 24-millimeter prime, Canon mm-hmm. prime, and then 24 to 105 millimeter, uh, you know, stabilized lens. So those were my prime, that was my primary setup. And I shot that great because that's, you know, it doubles as my still camera. So I was also shooting photos uh, for a story. Um, And so, you know, it was great. I could shoot the the camera both both for video and stills. And then Ron and I also had a uh, Panasonic TM900. It was like a high-def mini camera that, you know, that way we could each have a camera at all times. And then, uh, you know, we had them clipped to our harness so we could pull them out whenever we wanted to, Uh, which still wasn't that often. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The the Port-A-Ledge obviously is is it was an instrumental piece of equipment for any climber especially on a, on some of the, the faces that you're climbing on Meru can you just describe because I, I I will never probably experience the feeling of trying to fall asleep in a portal ledge hanging you know off a cliff at that altitude can you just tell me what that feels like uh, well it's, it's actually very comfortable relatively comfortable <laughs> because you're so exhausted but I mean essentially it's like a giant uh, hanging cot. It's like a cot, except for it's hanging off of a bunch of adjustable straps that you can adjust so that it's as even as possible. And then you kind of puppy pile into the thing, and you know, as comfortable as I just said it was, it it, it does sag in the middle. So the guy in the middle usually ends up with two people kind of basically sleeping on top of them. But you're all in the sleeping bag. Um, and in a way, it's kind of like your little safety zone because during the day, you're just out there climbing and it's super exposed and you're constantly kind of getting battered by conditions and wind and spin drifts and whatnot. But at night, you get to climb into this little uh, hanging cot with basically a tent fly over it and you can shut it all out. So it's, it, you know, it's, it's comfortable. Um, the straps are, are made of? Uh, nylon webbing. Nylon, okay. So they're, they're very, uh, you know, they're, they're very strong. But, yeah. you know, you, 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 you kind of cut your teeth in, like, places like Yosemite where you spend a lot of time in the portal ledge, and you learn to hold the portal ledge while you're hanging. I mean, building a portal ledge is... is I mean, it's it's a little bit insane. I mean, think about trying to set up a tent um, on uneven ground, but try to imagine setting up a really complicated tent 
hanging in your harness um, and having to kind of strap it all together and make sure it doesn't fall apart. It's it's that part can be pretty. Yeah, and if you fall, but, um, you know, if you fall, you could die. Right? I mean. Yeah, you can. I mean, you're clipped into. You're backed up, so the yeah. the portal is clipped into an anchor, and then you're also clipped into that anchor. So if you know the portal edge falls apart, it's it's very unpleasant when that happens. Yeah. But uh, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen, except for it did happen <laughs> on our. Yeah. Except that one time. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Could, do you think? I mean, people talk about this kind of these kind of pursuits being almost an addiction. Could could you stop climbing even if you wanted to? Mm, I find a lot of joy in climbing. I find a lot of purpose and and also peace. Like I, you know, I joke. I don't go to see a therapist and you know um, I think a lot of people would feel like they couldn't handle it if they didn't go to see a therapist well I feel the same way about climbing hmm. climbing kind of cleans out we call it cleaning out the pipes um, yeah. you know it really it really puts things into perspective what's important what's not what's significant what's insignificant I mean, when you're out there climbing on the side of a huge wall in the Himalayas, you you feel pretty insignificant, and in the in a way that's positive, though. It's like you you put your little insignificant problems aside when you're when you're out there. One of the one of the greatest little quick shots in in the in the film, which I love, just kind of stuck with me is. It's very brief, but it's it's Conrad anchored down back on Earth, shoveling snow off his front walk. You know, and this is juxtaposed against you know being up on the on the mountain, and it was just such a, a perfect little vignette of showing him returning to the everyday sort of mundane routines of life, yeah. and and not to mention you know shoveling snow, which is like something where is a lot different up there than than down on your front walk. I assume that yeah. that was a, a deliberate shot you you put in to kind of yeah uh, yeah it was yeah. It worked. It worked. Hey, I've been telling everyone to see this movie. Um, it, it's, it's really, you know, not a lot of movies, you know, feel like they're life-changing when you walk out, but this one certainly did for me. It, you, you just, you know, you don't, you don't forget it. So thanks for making it. Yeah, no, thank you so much. I mean, um, it's, it's been such an incredible journey to, get, to release it and see how it's been received. So uh, thank you so much for being a fan of the film and supporting the film. And um, I guess if, if folks are listening and they want to follow us on our social, it's just at Meru Film, M-E-R-U-F-I-L-M. That's on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And uh, merufilm.com is where you can look for theaters where it's still playing. Yeah, go see the movie any way you can. If it's not playing uh, near you, ask your local theater to, to play it. You know, and to run it, and I hope it runs for a long time. This is Jimmy Chin, the director of Meru. Jimmy, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. All right, take care, man.
With all this talk of landscapes, you may find yourself thinking about the 1914 painting Study for Over Vitebsk by the famous painter Marc Chagall. Stolen from a Manhattan museum in June 2001, it was recovered in January 2002 by none other than the U.S. Postal Service. More specifically, an intrepid employee of the Dead Letter Office in Topeka, Kansas deduced it was from a museum, then discovered it was stolen. Today, non-deliverable, unreturnable mail goes to the much less coolly named Mail Recovery Center in Atlanta. According to Postal Bulletin PB22351, valuable things like birth certificates, death certificates, x-rays, immigration paperwork, and apparently stolen paintings will launch mail sleuths into action. But so now you're wondering how to keep your letters from ending up dead. We humbly suggest working on your penmanship or stamps.com. With stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage right from your own computer and printer. And they'll send you a digital scale. It automatically calculates the exact postage you need for any letter or package in any class of mail. And I should note that if you're a small business, it's a heck of a lot cheaper than a postage meter. Right now, you can get a special offer using our promo code WORLD. It's a four-week trial plus $110 bonus offer, including that digital scale and up to $55 of free postage. So don't wait. Go to stamps.com, and before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in WORLD. That's stamps.com, enter WORLD. On today's edition of Stupid or Amazing, we're going to talk about the Keurig cold drink maker system. With me, I have editorial assistant Cameron Johnson. Hello. And executive editor Peter Martin. Hey. So the, the cold drink maker system is kind of like a the K cup for soda. You put in water, it cools it down, and also carbonates it, and you can make things like on their website they talk about traditional sodas like Coca-Cola or Sprite, craft sodas, which I'm somewhat confused about, seltzer waters, and then also non-carbonated things like iced tea and sports drinks. Hey guys, this is Kevin. I'm recording this after the fact. I'm butting in to point out that uh, throughout this segment, you'll hear us say that these sodas were about $4 for an 8-ounce drink. We actually found out that it's 4 to $5 for a set of four pods. So it turns out each soda is about $1.25. So you're actually going to hear the segment we originally recorded, but at the end, we're going to take another vote now that we have more accurate price information. And Peter, you've already experienced this. I have. We, uh, we tried it out last night. Um, I also tried to learn about how it actually works today, which was moderately confusing and pretty interesting. Uh, <laughs> so they told me that there are two, the two big problems they had to solve. They, they chill this water in 90 seconds down to 1.5 degrees Celsius, which you knew in Fahrenheit. Well, I, I, I did the math pretty quickly, and I'm pretty sure it's 39. Pretty Fahrenheit. cold. Well, just above freezing. Um, but what they do, they use an aluminum chamber inside, and that aluminum is... Uh, they run electricity through it, and that chills the aluminum. There's a little propeller inside that spins the water around, touches the aluminum, cools down really quickly, and then it goes through. The other part of the process is the carbonation, which they actually created. They're called carbonator beads. With a K, right? <laughs> is it? It must be. Just it's like because cold is also with a K. <laughs> That's, I already have my answer whether it's stupid or amazing. <laughs> um, but these beads are actually just little mineral beads that hold on to the carbon or the carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide. Um, <laughs> And they run water over them. That forces the carbon dioxide out, and then it goes into your drink. What happens to the beads? They stay up in the little in the little uh, pod up in the top. They get thrown away. Oh, go so straight to a landfill. They don't get <laughs> they don't get stuck in the machine. No. Right, but I guess I yeah. So I sort of buried one of the, one of the leads, which is that there's no CO2 canister for this. It's just everything no. is inside the little pods. Yeah, it's just a little I don't know 
half half pound. I'm very strong. It's hard to tell how heavy these things are. <laughs> uh, pod that's a little bigger than a K-cup, and the top half has the beads, and the bottom half has the syrup for the soda. Yeah, so it kind of looks like two K-cups like stacked on top of each other. Yeah. And how much does that make? That makes eight ounces. And how um, much does that cost? It costs about $4. So financially, not amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Technologically speaking, kind of cool. Yeah, you think this is one of those things that... Uh, is like all new technology and it'll come down in price in six months if anyone plans on buying it i would hope so yeah yeah do you know how much the unit itself costs i think they're four hundred dollars it's in the high threes and then for four bucks a soda after that for four bucks a small soda after that it's, yeah. it's so an investment it's a lot of sodas before you get down to like you know airport level pricing <laughs> yeah but i asked them they just think it's for early adopters and for people who want to have a variety of sodas at their disposal without the bulk of all those <laughs> two liter bottles or cans. So. Did you, was the soda good? Yeah, I thought so. I mean, Cameron and I and a couple other people in the office tried it last night and we're gonna, we're gonna try it today oh. so that you can try it too. We, we did a blind taste test and I actually couldn't tell. We did a can of Diet Coke and then uh, the Keurig of Diet Coke and I thought that the Keurig one was the can and uh, so I was incorrect and I was fooled. <laughs> it was very shameful. I So you're stupid. Great dishonor. She's amazing. Yeah, so uh, one of the things they say is that it's like these are almost all under 100 calories, but is that just because it's just because it's eight ounces, right? It's, it's not because it's like not Coca-Cola. Yeah, it's still yeah, the exact same Coke. It's just in a smaller container. It's like the teeny cans of Coke that you can buy in the store, which are also expensive. <laughs> it's true, and also bad for you. Uh, you said it like cools the water in 90 seconds, but I understand that you you still have to like plug it in and like wait it wait for it to get started. The the headache is the first two hours. If you are excited for a soda and you plug this thing in, you'll. <laughs> You'll need to go buy one, uh, but it, it takes two hours for the for the aluminum to cool down and get ready, and then after that, it only takes 90 seconds. I don't know how many it does in in each charge. I think we could probably run, I think it's at up to 10, um, and still have the temperature be at the right level and not have it slow us down. I, I just don't know what's hard about just buying a six-pack of Coke and keeping it in your fridge, and I've maybe used the Keurig coffee machine like once or twice, but it's for the same reason. I mean, I don't really mind waiting you know, two minutes for my coffee maker to make a pot of coffee instead of one cup at a time. Do you, either of you guys feel like this is something where like you're just really resistant to buying a six pack or you, would you drink too much soda if you had a six pack in your fridge? Is that the idea? No, I, I wonder with the Keurig coffee thing, I feel like it's more of a good thing because you can have different varieties of coffee every morning. But like when people drink soda, they usually just drink the one soda. Like if you drink Diet Coke, you pretty much only drink Diet Coke. I'd agree with that. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's I think it's kind of silly. I think it's fun. I think that's you have to just have the disposable income to indulge fun stuff. Yeah. If you can yeah. afford to have fun with this, you got a pretty good life. Should we, should we try one? Yeah, I think we should try one. All right. You want you want sound effects? Should I peel yeah. back the? So you peel a you peel a little foil foil layer layer off the bottom where all the uh, all the syrup is. You guys hear that? Um, and then put it in the machine. Make sure there's a cup underneath the thing, which we did. Close it like a K-cup machine. Hit start. Nothing's happening. The light is flashing. It's whirring a little bit. No liquid yet. Cameron, how, how many sodas could you, could you have bought from the vending machine in the time that we've waited for this thing to start? At least two. Oh. That sounds like carbonation. Oh. Still nothing in the cup. Oh, oh, there it is. here we go. Some clear water with bubbles and syrup. 
All eight ounces. Eight ounces, looks, eight ounces looks so pitiful when you put it in a pint glass. Well, it, especially when you wait 90 seconds for it. It does come with uh, special Keurig glass soda cups. Worth those like $27 I each. I think they're smaller. Yeah. So you have the illusion of it actually uh, All right, Kevin. being big enough. I'm going to make Let's another one while you try that one. Was, was this Coke? That's a Diet Coke. This, oh. split, that oh. in, split that into a, a yeah. cup. And we'll make a we'll make a coke in the in the ninety seconds that it takes you to try. That's pretty good. I think it actually does taste more like, it, like getting it from a soda fountain than it does like getting it from a can, which yeah. is kind of impressive to be able to do that at home. That's, that's more, like more amazing than I, yeah. Yeah, I think the science and the product is amazing, but I think the price and the necessity is stupid. I'm with you. Wait, so how come it didn't? It shouldn't already be cold and should only take 90 seconds this time? No, because it's not, It's it has to run the water through the little electric can, the canister, the aluminum canister that's oh. inside. And that water gets churned around in there to pick up the cold from the aluminum. And then actually the backside of that aluminum, copper, which is a good heat, uh, it draws the heat back to the back and then gets blown out by the fans. Wait, okay. did you have to put water in this? Yeah, there's a reservoir on the side. I think oh. it probably holds six or something. I see. Is there a version where you can connect it to a water line? No. Seems unnecessary. Uh, there is, but it costs another four hundred dollars. Yeah. Uh, I think the device is. I think the device is stupid, and not just price. I just still can't really figure out where I'd have to get to in life to think that this was a thing I needed in my kitchen. I agree. I think it's. I think it's stupid. I think it's something that, like you said, it's a solution without a problem. I'm. I agree with what Cameron said before. Amazing technology, kind of stupid in practice. Um, but I love soda. I would never buy this, but I certainly will use it a lot while it's here in the office. I do love soda, and I actually I have a soda stream, and it is annoying. Like, whenever I finish up one canister, it just sits on my counter for three weeks until I'm stopping lazy and I go get a new one. So in that sense, it is cool. And if they could figure out a more cost-effective uh, application of these little beads, I think that'd be cool. Okay, so that was what we recorded before. Now I've got Peter and Cameron with me again, so we can take another boat. I'm more sorry this time for messing us up the first time. <laughs> uh, so, Cameron, now that you know how much soda costs and you're drinking a soda right now, what do you think? Do you wish you'd made this yourself? No, I'm, I'm doubling down because this is $1.10 from our vending machine, and it was 12 ounces. So I think I'm still going to have to go with uh, stupid. Okay. Peter? Can I say it's less stupid? I think it's a little more amazing now that it's not as expensive. The unit itself is still way too expensive to be amazing. The technology is still good. Okay, but but still stupid. <laughs> still stupid. Okay, Sorry. I think still stupid. Also, the the price was never my main issue. I just couldn't really figure out why why I would get one of these instead of soda. Seems like a lot of work waiting two hours for it to cool down. So I'm saying stupid. Also, two hours is only the first time you plug it in. Now I've become a defender since yeah. I made that yeah. first. I think mistake. you have to amazing now. <laughs> I, think, yeah. I still can't say amazing, but I do like it more. Okay. All right. Thanks, guys. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks for the soda. And that's the show. The most useful podcast ever is produced by Jack Dylan. We'd like to thank Sarah Bentley and Annie Bowers from Panoply. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes, and while you're there, leave us a comment. We'd love to know what you think. You can also check out our other show, The Most Useful Podcast Ever, hosted by my colleague, esteemed colleague, Jacqueline Detweiler. If you want to read more about Meru, check out our website, popularmechanics.com slash podcasts. And while you're there, you can subscribe to the print and digital editions of Popular Mechanics for just $13.99 for one year. 
I'm Kevin Dupsick. Thanks for listening.